Well, good morning. Here we go again. I was glad your dear Pastor Gleiman did not mention about my clothing in a certain color that he seems to think I always wear. But a number of you now have that on your minds, and you mention it. So I'm a little resentful of it. Not, not really. But uh, I'm going to tell you next week I will not have even one bit of green on me, just so you know that there are other things in my wardrobe. Well, good morning to you. It's good to see you again. Let's do a little review. Remember, we're trying to get a framework here. 2050, what's that? Who's that? That's Abraham. Okay. Now, we have these dates here. 1050, that's the beginning of Saul's reign. 1010, David. 970, Solomon. Now, the, the point of this is this is the great united monarchy. This is the glory days of Israel there for those 120 years. After this, Solomon had a fool of a son who divided the kingdom because uh, he had a chance to unite it. But instead of listening to the older, wiser people, he took up with some young punks who said, oh, those northern tribes... Rub their face in it. Do Make it hard for them. And, and the north went off by themselves. And that kingdom divided. But these are the glorious years. Now Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. They were to do a number of things that honored him. They were to keep a Sabbath. When you keep a Sabbath, that means you trust the Lord with that. Uh, it means that you dare to set aside a day and, and you don't work because you know that God will carry on just fine. And it models what he did. He rested on a day. No, he was not tired. But uh, we get tired. Also, they were to let their land rest. Every seventh year, the land was to lie fallow so that it could regain its uh, its power again, and it also shows faith in the Lord that I can do that. Naturally, you'd rotate, right? You'd have certain parts of your crops. But they got hoggish about this, and they, for many years, almost five centuries, didn't leave the land fallow. So they owed the land 70 years of rest. God says, you know what? You're paying up. And the way you're paying up is you're going to leave the land altogether. I will send my servant, what a name for a pagan emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came and he invaded Israel and carried them off into captivity for 70 years to make up for their greed. So that's how the 70 years are. And this started in three stages, 605. That's when Daniel and his friends went off. Then there were three stages, 597, 586. We've seen this before. How do you figure the 70? The 70 can be figured a a couple of different ways. There's a basic way. It doesn't quite come out just right, but you can go down to 539 where Cyrus the Persian said... Uh, He took over for Nebuchadnezzar, and he let Israel go home. Or probably a better way 
is to figure it down here. There's a better 70 years where the temple was finally rebuilt. They went home in 539, but they dilly-dallied. They built their own big houses, but they let the word of God and the temple go un unfinished. So God sent Haggai the prophet who gives them a good rebuke. That book is has this message. Finish the temple. Finish the temple. Look at you, you got these grand houses, but you let the work of God go undone. So in 516, that finally got finished. Now you come down to the last book, Malachi. And you have that probably about 300 B.C. Now you have a gap until the time of Christ. When the Bible picks up again, oh, let us say maybe Jesus was born about 4 B.C. How can that be? Well, there are calculations. That's probably, we, we kind of goofed up a few things along the way and so on and so forth. Well, during this time, in that gap, is the time when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and all those groups grew up. That's when they were developed. They were the, the figures to uh, think about. Well, they got put out of the land because of greed. And that's not all we're going to talk about today, but it's one of the things you talk about when we come to money. Money. Let's take a, a little survey here. How many of you today would like to have less money than you have. <laughs> Unanimous. How many of you would like to have more money than you have? The rest of you should confess your sins. How, and how many of you think it's just right? Well, that's great. Okay, well, then maybe, maybe you're, uh, you've already arrived. Um, I'm still trying to make more myself and see what I can do. John Wesley, hmm, never heard of him? Yeah. He said, uh, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So I don't think anybody's really against making money, but our perspective on it's a really big deal. Really big deal. It can be the difference between happiness and contentment with God and a wasted life. Not money itself, but the perspective on it. Right? Now, we all know the, the, this, this proverb's in every culture. You can't take it with you. Now, the Egyptians, though, they, they thought you could. So the pharaoh thought that he was going to take it with him. And he 
inside the tomb he built himself kind of a you know, a condo. There's something, though, you want to watch out with, not that you'll ever have a chance, but ladies, don't ever marry a pharaoh. Because when he died, you got buried with him. These were great men. Outstanding. Knew how to treat a lady. They thought they were going to take it with them, but in fact, of course, they were without Yahweh, and they went to hell with their money. It didn't go with them, but they went to hell. What a terrible, terrible thing that is. Some have said, I want to spend my last penny, then die. Well, that's not a good idea, and you should be very precise in your calculations if you plan to do that, too. So there's a lot of sense and there's a lot of nonsense about money. Today, we're going to get into the Proverbs. Remember now, when I say Solomon said, I always have in mind the fact that God Almighty says, because behind these human authors is the author. I assume that the word of God was inspired and inerrant in the original manuscripts. I have that assumption as a basis for our study here. I have absolute confidence. But one of the mysteries of God is that Yahweh, the eternal God, his Holy Spirit breathed out the scriptures. But there are real human authors as well. They were not simply secretaries to whom the Holy Spirit dictated because we can find in the different authors different grammatical structures, different vocabularies. They probably had varying educations and abilities to write, but God superintended them so that there was a perfect product. So whenever you hear me say Solomon said, or Agur said, always assume that I'm always also meaning God says, because it's his word. All right, well, let's go. You hopefully have before you some materials like this. You have this street smarts thing. And today we're going to deal with some issues. Here are the things I want to say. I'm going to say them. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say. I'm going to say them, then I'm going to tell you what I said. All right? So here's the first part. It is better to be without money than to gain it dishonestly. Borrowing money may lead to bondage. Third, generosity with money leads to prosperity. Fourth, the ultimate value of money must be kept in perspective. Money can't buy you love. I think that's what George Harrison said. You know him? Ringo Starr? Come on now. You got, okay, so. Can't buy me love. Okay, right. So, it can't buy you love. It can't guarantee your health. It certainly cannot purchase your eternal salvation. So it has limits. 
but it's a necessary commodity, isn't it? And we've all determined we would like to have at least as much as we have right now, if not more. Oh, chapter 10, verse 2, ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. Now there, I think, is a proverb which has some eternal perspective. Many of them are just for right now. They're on the surface living kind of things. But ill-gotten treasures are of no lasting value. He contrasts them with righteousness. You know there are all kinds of ways to make money. Perhaps uh, when you were making money, you made it the right way. That's good. If you didn't and you have a nagging conscience about it, it would be good to confess this. It is possible also to have immoral investments, isn't it? Well, what difference does it make? You know, I, you can't get a clean investment anyway, so, uh, well... Now, in a certain fashion, let us not be naive. It's very difficult. If you, for instance, are in mutual funds, you can't track every company right down to the end and know for sure. But if you know for sure the investment is immoral, get out of it. It's not worth it. Well, so, Dan, what do you really think? That's that's what I think. But ill-gotten gains, when you make that money, want it to be made the right way, don't you? You want to have a good conscience about it. Then 22.6, would someone read this? Twenty-two sixteen. Sorry, twenty-two sixteen. Oh, here comes the traveling man here to for. He who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and he who gives gifts to the rich both come to poverty. There are two things about money. First, do not oppress poor people with it. Second, don't use it for bribery. Well, I know that's the law, but yeah, I know somebody in Springfield <laughs> and he likes my money. Watch out. Watch out for that patronage. You ought to pray about these things. Watch. Now, I know we're Americans, and we have a right to influence. We can make campaign contributions and all of that. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about bribery. By golly, we've got money, and we know how to use it for influence. Watch out, you see. Because the point is to be right not to be just of influence. So we need to be careful with the way we use this, don't we? Oh, the poor. The poor have often been oppressed. 
to make money. New Testament book of James. James is the wisdom literature of the New Testament. I want to read to you chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Early Christians were not middle class. They weren't upper middle class. They weren't upper class. They were mainly lower middle class and lower class. A large part of the Christian population were slaves. Uh, the group to whom Jesus, uh, to whom uh, James is writing here, they're the diaspora. They had been persecuted and they had left Jerusalem. They've gone all over the world now. He's writing them a letter of comfort because they are tenant farmers being oppressed, robbed of their wages by the rich. Here's what it says. Now listen, you rich people. He's not really addressing them. He is, it's sort of um, God speaking as if to them in the hearing of believers who are being oppressed. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not oppressing you. And he says one more thing, then be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming, where he will make these things right. Oh, if we are of influence, we need to treat people whom we hire well. We need to invest in companies that treat workers righteously. Very important issue to God. Well, if you have somebody mow your lawn, don't rip them off. Right? so forth. But that money now, uh, if we hire people, we hire people to make us money, don't we? And then we want to pay them well. But these were believers who were being oppressed by the rich. And God said, I, I'm going to deliver you. We need to be careful how we invest this money. Oh, yes. I had to say something. Did you want to ask a question? Just a moment here. I want to tell you a story, though. R.G. Letourneau, any of you, did you ever know a Westinghouse Air Brake Company? I used to be in the pastorate down around Peoria and knew some people that actually had worked for him. And when he was there in, in the Peoria area, he would invite people to come to chapels. They didn't have to. But uh, there would be chapels during the week at work, and you would be paid while attending. He was a man of great, uh, greatly respected, treated his employees very, very well. 
and founded Letourneau College, which you may know is down in Texas and is a, uh, an engineering school with a Christian emphasis to it. Yeah. Is it the, at the restaurants? Excellent. Sometimes they, um, they get, um, they don't get um, their tithe or whatever it is, the tip, from the Christians. And, and so they don't think well of Christians. Yeah. And it's a shame. Yes. That it, it is shameful. And that is not just a story somebody made up. My son uh, took a year. We had a deal. If he went up to Michigan State University, uh, it was out-of-state tuition. Uh, here's what you're going to do. You can go one year, but then you're going to have to work. And so he took a year out of school and worked so he could get in-state tuition, then you become sort of a, you know, a citizen of Michigan, if you want to say it that way. Uh, so he was working at a restaurant during that time. Very difficult. The restaurant wasn't doing too well. He said the people that worked at the restaurant dreaded working on Sunday. You know why? That's when the Christians would come. Oh, that's just such a horrible testimony. It's just horrible. Horrible. Now, you ask my son 20% about what you should give. I, I always gave 15. Now I give 20. Folks do not make much money. If you don't have enough money to tip, oh, come on, this group, are you kidding me? Well, we didn't get our money by just throwing it around. No. Eat a smaller sandwich and give a better tip. That's my message. Thank you for bringing that up for me. 28.6 now. 28.6. I should say, too, for those of you that don't like to spend money on lunch, you should stay here afterward. That saves you one meal a week. Some of you go. I mean, I'm for sure staying. All right. Okay. 28.6. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Well, that's for sure. God is no respecter of persons. He looks at the heart. He is not in the least, not in the least impressed with money. It's all relative, isn't it? Uh, when we were uh, downstate, the houses were smaller. There, people spend their money on pickup trucks and guns. But here, they're spent on houses. So we came up here, and we got a house. When our friends come up here, uh, they say, wow, this is a big house. But in comparison to the area, we're, we've got a very average place. It's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative. How you use it, where you live, your gratitude for it. I know it's a good investment, all of that stuff. But it's better would be better to be righteous and poor than unrighteous and rich. Now, naturally, rich people can be righteous, right? Of course. How are we doing so far? We hanging in? Can you rob the rich to feed the poor? 
I am not going to get into politics here today. So, this next question. What's that about? Oh, it, Christians are notoriously cheap in their tips. So, in other words, kind of the standard's about 20% now, and Christians, you know, they're, they're good for about 10% or something. But then, but then, to make up for it, they leave behind a tract to lead somebody to Jesus. Okay? If you leave a tract, you better give them 25%. Yes? cash, because then they don't have to declare it, <laughs> and that's all right, because they've earned it. It, it is, I, I'm not going to comment on that, but um, <laughs> one, one issue okay. here, I do know it's best to give a cash tip, because some, if, if you give it on your credit card, some restaurants don't, do not give the waiters properly what they have coming to them. So, I always like to give them cash. All right. Oh, now borrowing money. Twenty-two-seven. Yes. I apologize for the interruption. I um, came in late. Um, have you heard about the man who's uh, declared in his will that uh, all of his mo- he keep all of his money after he died? She wrote a check and put it in his casket. Nice. Proverbs 22.7. If you don't get that, you, you'll get it sometime this afternoon later. Okay. Proverbs 22.7. The rich rule over the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. You know, I was thinking here uh, today, is this really that relevant to this group? Would you be borrowing today? You might be. I know not all things are always as they seem. That's kind of basic, isn't it? That in order to make money, you want to be making interest, not paying it. Maybe you have some young people in your family, and you could pass that information along. Borrowing is not a great thing, especially on a depreciating item. Nowadays, though, uh, in the general population, there aren't all that many people that can just write a check for a, a new automobile. Maybe some of us can. But that's probably something we have to change our teaching on a little bit, because that's a depreciating item, and not many people can just write out for that. But the home has been a, a good one. But borrowing, in general, is a bad thing. It is, in fact, immoral to borrow so much that you can't pay it back, and that goes for a government as well as individuals. Uh, we're almost to the point of no return right now as a country. Now, I, again, I, I do not mean uh, to be a political here, because I've voted for Republicans, I've voted for Democrats, too that I've known. So um, it's a really, really bad thing 
to keep buying and you know you can't pay back. Is this a yes? Uh, two things. One, uh, many people got themselves in trouble because they had a good job and they lived, uh, you know, at the edge of what they were making. They were okay, and then they either lost their job or there were pay cuts or, you know, you work less oh time, yeah. so then their income goes down. But um, I, quite a while ago, I worked with um, a chemistry teacher who said his family lived below their means, okay? And then he, uh, he and his wife decided that it would be a good place to raise their kids, not in the city, but in, you know, almost a rural area, you know, maybe suburb, but not, you know, way out. Yes. Okay, so he took a job at a Christian college, which, of course, would pay much less, but it didn't affect him. Because he was living at that level yes. anyhow. So he was able to do what he felt led by God to do because he had lived modestly and not at the edge of his spending. Yes, that's, that's a good lesson. I started out talking about John Wesley. Those Methodists, they got their name. Methodist was not a pleasant name. It was a, it was a term of derision put on them. Because they had such discipline, they went to bed early at night, got up early, had devotional lives, prayer, they lived frugally, and, and so forth. Uh, but if you are saving all you can and giving all you can, this naturally limits your lifestyle. That takes care of it right there. Right? You, just, you can't spend so much on yourself. But here are some questions. Can I do without it? The answer is almost always yes. That doesn't mean you should never get anything, but it's not a bad question. Can I do without it? That is a good retirement question too, isn't it? Because we are getting pinched, and you know about that stock market, and oh yeah, it's going balls of fire right now, but for a while it didn't. Oh, one of the great things my pastor did for me when I was an associate pastor, one of the best things he did for me is he got me investing. Right? He said, look, here's what you can do and start in investing and all. Oh, so that was about, let's say, 1981 I started. The first correction I ever dealt with was, when was it, about 84, 85? All I remember is I had to go lie down on the sofa. Because I hadn't gotten used to it. Now there have been three or four, and you say, oh, big deal. Now this is an opportunity to buy it. You know, I've got the positive talk now and, and all of that. But uh, these, these things are not certain, are they? We do the best we can with them. Uh, is this purchase God's will? Now there's one for you. There is, is this purchase God's will? You mean, well, this is my money, isn't it? No, it's not. Now, there's, there's something right there. My life, to, to be a committed follower of Christ, we come to this conclusion. My life is not my own. My assets are not my own. I'm a manager. This idea, I'll do with it what I want to. It's none of anybody's business. It Indeed, it is. It's God's business. 
you have to ask yourself that question, is this God's will for me to do this? Sir, Mr. Dean, we need a roving mic here. Here it comes. Just one moment, please. I like the way Shakespeare puts it. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for a loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must be follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. I like the first, I like first of all, you're sharp. I like the first part you said, it's better not to be a borrower or a lender, certainly to a friend. You know about that, don't you? You loan to a friend or relative, yeah. Yeah. Here's something my dad did I think was really smart. My dad had some money, three kids. He let us borrow money from him, but it was a business proposition. Right, that, that way nobody's crabbing and wondering about who's getting what. I borrowed money for a nice car when my wife and I, you know, we had a putt-putt and it went down. We wanted a little nicer car. Dad made a business proposition. I had monthly payments with interest. And when I got down to the end of that three-year payment, he excused the last couple of payments, which meant I had paid no interest. But doing business that way, it just kept the siblings. I'm not saying you should do it that way, but it's always kept peace. I think it's wise to do. That way they're not thinking, oh, you know, Georgie got 12500 for that, but Cynthia only got 11200 And, you know, they're keeping, look, none of your business. We're doing a business proposition. The interest is going back to the state. The money is, don't worry about it, okay? And so forth. Is it wise to borrow under the present circumstances? When I'm done here, I'm going next door because I'm very interested in managing money. It was a good session last week. Under the present circumstances. Generosity with money. Oh, boy, here we go now. Oh, but the second part. Oh, I, but I wanted to get, I was nice to you about the first part, Mr. Dean, but to thine own self be true worries me if the self is not dependable. I would say be true to the Lord. But I understand you're, be, you're true to your conscience, right, and so forth, and not violating that. I was hoping you would be true to the Lord. Yes, sure, that's right. I know that. Okay, Generosity with money. It is one of the more disturbing stats that I can read on the Internet. I've heard this in better documented studies. That getting more and more and more money does not seem to result in giving a higher percentage of one's income to others. That's a huge problem. What are you doing with it all? No, but the tendency is get more, spend more. In fact, 
the more I get, the higher percentage of my money I spend on myself. That's the national tendency. So somewhere that needs to be clipped. 3, 9, and 10. Let's read this one. 3, 9, and 10. Somebody? Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Did you, uh, did you get verse 10 too? Is that in there? Okay, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, so generosity begets God's blessing. Remember in the, uh, in the New Testament, there's a story about a guy who did this wrong. Uh, when, when he got a lot of money, he said, I've got so much money, I don't know what to do with it. I'll just build more for myself. Oh, that's, that's foolish. That is foolish. So we're to be generous givers to the Lord's work. That goes on, doesn't it? That investment reaps something in eternity. People could come to Christ through our giving. A young person could get turned on to world missions because we support them on a missions trip and so forth. We're to keep giving. Now, sometimes in retirement, one of the adjustments people have to make is, I've been a generous giver all my life. I can't give as much as I used to. Now, God understands that. You have to make that adjustment. If some of you are still planning for the future, you're still bringing in money, you might want to think about that day when your income contracts a little bit, see what you can do about having money still available for giving. But I, I would say, now my wife and I have made an adjustment uh, this year. I was a little bit dissatisfied when we did our taxes last year. I was a bit dissatisfied at how much we had given. So we've made an adjustment. And that just means there will be some things we don't do this year maybe that we would have done. But by the time you make that adjustment and you give that money, you don't notice it anyway. Now, you can't use this as an investment strategy. Oh, let's see. God promises if I give a lot, then, I'll, then he'll give me more. Oh, therefore, I'll just, I'll just up that lot because I know that that'll you know, it'd be like putting it on the stock market. I think he's got that one covered. That's called motive, right? So, but we ought to be sacrificial givers. 11, 24 through 26. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. People curse the man who hoards grain, Hmm. but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. Yeah, you could see this. Any of you ever watch Bonanza? You know, that's... I do. When I'm... I have a couple of days a week when I'm home and I try to tune in about noontime 
and catch the Cartwright boys and all. But once in a while, you'll see an episode where somebody withholds the grain. They, they buy it all up in the area. They won't release it, and the cattle get in trouble and all of that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to make people suffer by withholding a commodity as a believer. Also, the one that uses money to refresh other people, the text says, the one who uses money to refresh others will be himself refreshed. God will stand by you in your time of need. Do you know as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has a commitment to you to take care of you financially. Now here's the issue, according to his standards. Maybe not according to yours, but you are not going to be put out on the street. God will stand by you in this area. Yes. made a decision to uh, buy a house. The house is way too large for my wife and I, so I uh, include in that seven others, my son, his wife, and five children. And I believe with all my heart that A, it's uh, God's will, and B, he would be homeless. Yeah. Well, certainly taking care of your family is a wonderful priority to me. You bet. Yeah. Sometimes we uh, decide not to downsize when there's still kids around and grandchildren and so on. That's all stuff we need to think about, isn't it? The the bigger family and and all of this. Doesn't this presuppose that the people have used what little money they have wisely? I mean, if you go into the grocery store and you see the people um, buying things that really are not healthy, you know, potato chips, pop, whatever, and they have, you know, a card for uh, some kind of subsidy, that perhaps is not the best use of their finances. So then they run out uh, or they go out to eat. You know, if you go to McDonald's, you spend a lot of money and, you know, they're you hear the response, well, why shouldn't we be able to do that? Well, I'm saying, you know, when you see somebody that is really trying and doing their best to to live on what little money they have and they, they're not making it, then help away. But I think that people nowadays, the younger people, are not educated in how to take care of their money. Well, the, the best way to help, if we're helping uh, people in our, uh, in our family or friends, is to do that with accountability and training. And hopefully, uh, you know, probably too late to train your kids, but uh, grandchildren and so on, as you have opportunity, it's a good thing to do. Uh, there are people out there who would love to have coaches. You know, one thing that wouldn't hurt a bit is if this group 
had opportunity for interrelationships with the younger people in the congregation where you can pass some of this on, not as a lecture, but as a, in a relationship. If you get in those kind of relationships, then you have opportunities for this. Well, I want to talk now about number four, the ultimate value of money must be kept in perspective. 23, 4 through 5. These next two passages, I'm going to skip over 11, 28 right now. 23, 4 through 5, 37 through 9 are a couple of my favorites. 23, 4 through 5. Would somebody read this, please? Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Have you ever experienced this? Oh, yeah. Man, we got some money there. I didn't think that was coming in. All of a sudden, here, here, here's, so like, like I'm the wad of money, and all of a sudden, it, it sprouts wings, and about that time, the transmission goes out, or... You know, tuition payment comes due, and it flies away. It flies away. People don't make money by accident. It's hard work. You need to work hard and be smart about it and all. But uh, you can't control always the circumstances, can you? I'm sure in this group, some of you have experienced health downturns that you hadn't anticipated, and that just had a great impact on your income. So I think one thing he's saying here is keep a perspective on this. Don't kill yourself trying to get rich because that can fly off in no time. Just don't kill yourself with this. Work hard, yes, but don't work yourself to death. We need a work ethic, but there is also a balance to this. There are some people who make one good decision and that's all that's required for the rest of their life. And they make, I'm thinking particularly of Berkshire Hathaway, if you would have put $50,000 into him when he started, it'd be worth something like or $780 million now. You don't have to work your whole life. All you have to do is make the right decision at the right time. Yes, I think the, the idea was some people make one good decision and it lasts them the rest of their life. I wish that I were one of those people. <laughs> no, it's not, is it? No. And some people make one bad decision that lasts the rest of their life, too. Yeah. Well, we do the best we can. Undergirding all that I'm saying here is the sovereignty of God Almighty. Just a moment. Uh, we are responsible to do the best we can according to scriptural principles. But God blesses. God does not bless everyone the same way. You realize that, don't you? Now, if you get, if you get all torqued off about that, you've got a problem because that's God's business. He blesses some people more than others in the area of finances. That's his business. You don't get everything everybody else gets. I get some things you don't get. You get some things I don't get. And what God says about that is, 
you shall not what? Covet. Covet. Right? That's God's business. So we do the best we can with all of this. Then we leave it to him. But we understand that at any time, that fortune which we have accumulated can sprout wings and fly away. Therefore, you ought to have invested yourself in something besides making money. In eternal things. In friends. Because when the birdie flies away, if you've invested your whole life in that, it seems like the whole life is going out the window. Here is the one passage that I think is the most beautiful of all, 37 through 9. It brings it into balance. I got it. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Oh, what does he ask for? Moderation. Because here are the dangers. You get so much, you say, it's all about me. See? It's about me, baby. I've got such and such millions of dollars and If God won't take care of me, you know what? I'll take care of myself. But then you're too big for your britches. Really got, you have way outgrown your britches at that point. That's a danger. That is because we are constitutionally depraved as human beings. If you don't believe that, just read your Westminster Confession. Uh, Because of Adam's sin, we are selfish people. And you get that that too much money, pretty soon, you just ruin your life with your independence. That becomes your God. But the other way, if you become very poor, you can curse him. Where were you, God? You said you were going to take care of me. You don't take care of me. And so on and so forth. But the prayer here is to have Enough. So it's possible to pray for the wrong thing. To desire the wrong thing. To obsess over the wrong thing. Now if I may, I want to go outside of the book of Proverbs to the book of Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon. I'm going to teach you, well, you're going to see two of the most basic principles for investing there could ever be, and they are at least 3,000 years old. Ready? Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 2. Somebody read that? Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 2. I got we it. need the mic. We don't want anybody to miss this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 11, 1 and 2. 
Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Wow, what, a, what great investing advice that is. Some have used this as a missionary verse. It's not a missionary verse. No, send the missionaries out, and after many days there will be people saved. Well, that may be true, but that's not what it's teaching. This is a verse about commerce. Send your money out across the seas. Invest. It will come back to you after many days. What principle is that? After many days. Long-term investing. Right? Isn't that what the Bible is teaching? Boy, if some people read their Bibles. Oh, you know, the Bible's not very practical. It's just, oh, cast your bread. Invest your money out there in commerce, and after many years, it will come back to you. Also, diversification. Put it in many baskets, right? The Bible says this. We say, well, everybody knows it. Not really. Maybe everybody knows it, but they don't do it often. And sometimes Christians, they just don't think it's, it's that great a thing to invest in. It is. The Bible says to do it. To do it long term. Not this speculation business and, and, and all. Well, you say, are, are you trained in investing? Are you advising us? I'm advising you based on the word of God. What it says. All right. Let us strike a balance in all of this, too. I don't know if, if you're regular Bible readers, but I'll give you a passage to read, and then I'm going to read one. But maybe this week you could read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I believe that that is the core of what the Bible says about giving to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8 and nine, those two chapters. There are seven or eight principles you can harvest there. Such things as give sacrificially, give from a well-motivated heart, and all. But First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. think when we're teaching one another about the word, Dave, I believe I'll read this, and then if you have a question, you can. Did you have a question? Okay. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read this one in the interest of time. But godliness with contentment is great gain. What a wonderful thing that is. If you live a godly life, That is one of the greatest investments you can ever make. Godliness, contentment, that's a great gain. That's the greatest gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Well, who doesn't know that? Everybody knows that. Every culture knows that, right? Yeah, but to live it is another thing. 
you're not taking anything with you. Nothing. How much are you taking with you? How much now? Say it again. Now here's the ringer, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now there's the goal. I'm not there yet. See, there, there's, there's the goal. I mean, there's, there's what God says. That's taking care of you. If I give you food and clothing, I'm taking care of you. But what about my house? What, what about my fourth car not covered? People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now this one always, I wrestle with it, because first, you really can't get rich unless you try to. I mean, maybe your goal isn't to get rich, but you go out trying to make money, right? That's the whole point. You're trying to be wise and be good stewards and make money. But it seems here that that can get way out of hand so that it occupies a whole life. And he says this, it will plunge you into destruction, and I think he is saying here it's possible for that to plunge you into eternal destruction where Christ and the cross and all of this become completely irrelevant to us. And all we care about is making more. He goes on. Here's a, here's a highly misquoted verse. It's usually... Uh, quoted like this, the love of money is the root of all evil. That is not what the Bible says. Or money is the root of all evil. That's how it's usually said. No, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There's a lot of evil that isn't related to money. And not all use of money is evil. But the love of money, which replaces the love of Christ, brings all sorts of chaos to life. It makes us willing to do things to our families, neglect them. It makes us willing to uh, use other human beings in ways they should not be used. We need to be very, very careful for that. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's always this perspective, isn't it? Use, we should use our money well as a stewardship from God. We should try to make our own way the best that we can so that we do not have to depend on others. should manage it so it lasts as well as we can. But ultimately, we need to trust in the Lord. And if things contract, look, if the economy bombs out, and that's the worst scenario. And you know, My sermon is usually these things just they kind of correct themselves, right? But suppose God were to judge our nation and the economy were to tank. 
we're going to be okay. Because God will take care of us. Uh, if our standards are changed, God will take care of us. He is committed to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These other things shall be added to you. It may be we'll have to adjust our standard, but God is going to be there for us. Do not hoard, give. Do not worry, be thankful. God's Holy Spirit, he'll work in our lives. A question here too. Another passage. Hmm. Well, there very well could be, Dave. I oh, that this about money for the love of money. I, I'm not familiar with one. If there is, it could be. About what? Oh yes, uh, Matthew six. From about uh, 30, uh, 30 through 33, then also at the end of Luke 12 is a parallel passage, maybe verse 28 down through the end. Give to people, get outside of yourself, share with them, uh, give to the Lord's work. Give some to your family now while you're still around. Don't worry about it. Do your best. Trust God for this. He will care for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. May we be people who are content in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Help us be good managers. Help us to know how to use the money we have in order to take care of ourselves in our latter years. But teach us also to be generous so that the gospel may go forth and so that other people may enjoy uh, our generosity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.